All right, let's go ahead and get started. So I've got to teach this a couple times already today. The first group, we got pretty far. The second group, we just rabbit trailed everywhere and did not get very far at all. So I don't know what's going to happen tonight. So we'll see if we can stick to it, if we kind of start going different directions. Either way is okay. Um, so we've just got done studying the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we've kind of been working on that. Uh, and then now we're transitioning to the church, which is a very natural connection because the Holy Spirit was sent by the Son to fill believers and to fill his church and to take the church forward on mission. Okay, so this is a very natural connection, studying the Spirit and to studying the Spirit at work in and through God's church. So it's kind of fun. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you that you are present with us. Spirit, I pray that you'd guide us and teach us through your word. Uh, we're relying upon you, and we need you and your word to grow us and change us. So God, I pray that you would just do that tonight. Uh, we trust you, and we believe in you, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen. So I just want to throw a couple of books your way so you know about these uh, as we move forward. Uh, here's a book called The Church. It's by a guy named Edmund Clowney. If you ever want to go deeper than what we're going to go tonight, this would be a book you could check out. I'm going to leave them up here if you guys want to look at them. A second book, which is a little bigger, is called Sojourners and Strangers, The Doctrine of the Church. This is by a guy named Greg Allison. Uh, this would be a textbook like if you did a class in seminary on the church. This is probably the book you're going to have. This is a newer book, probably one of the best ones written up to date, like in human history. Like it's a really good one. This guy's coming in April, by the way. Like he is one of the top theologians in the world. He is coming to speak here in April. I'm asking him also to do a core class for me. So I get a little break uh, and you're going to get one of the top theologians in the world coming in and teaching for like three or four hours for us in April also. So he's going to be with the elders Friday night, helping us with the doctrinal statement. Saturday morning doing an intensive and then preaching on Sunday. He's going to be busy, but we're going to make use of his time here. Uh, <clears throat> and then just one more. Tonight we're going to probably kind of end our time talking about church discipline, which is an interesting and hard subject. So we're going to talk about it some, but when we're done, you're going to feel like, I wish I could have talked about that more. Here's a book called God's, God Redeeming His Bride. Okay, this is a really good book also on church discipline. I'll leave this up here. The things we don't get to tonight are covered very, very well in here. Half this book is appendices on examples and stories of how to do certain things. Okay, I, Robert Chong is a pastor I got to serve with in the last church I was in. Amazing guy, Christian counselor. And like he actually helped me take several different people through different types of church discipline situations. So very wise guy. He's got a beard down to here, so he just he feels like you have to give him respect. Uh, but he has a brain to go along with his beard. So we trust Robert a lot. Really good guy. So if you would, join me on page 16. The church. So we're starting with the church universal. And the next week we're going to talk about the church local. So this is like the capital C church. And the next week we're going to kind of talk about the lowercase c church. The church how it functions, like in, in a location and how it works. So broadly and universally, the church plays a particular role in this world. From this statement, we're going to get kind of the points that we're going to use to talk through about the church. The statement is this, Jesus's church consists of believers who stand as the pillar of truth in the world with diverse members unified around scripture's call to purity and mission with his power and his presence. So let's start with the first description of the church. It is the pillar of truth. 
So the church teaches and lives out the teaching of Jesus regardless of the values and teachings of the world. Like the world can go in a lot of different directions and the church stays faithful to God's word. The only way it stays a pillar of truth is if it's connected to God's word, which is our source of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 says this, Matt, we're on page 16. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So, there probably aren't many homes built like this today, but if you were in a building or a structure, maybe it'd be something over in Europe that's really old, and it was actually supported by columns and pillars. If you saw a couple of those columns shift or crack and you were inside the building, what would you probably do? Right out of there. Okay, so for us, when it comes to being a pillar of truth in the world, we have to make sure we're not swaying, shifting, cracking, or weakening or hollowing in any way. We have to go over and over again God's word to make sure we're right in line with what he's taught us. Okay, we're always called to be right in line with God's, what God has taught us. Uh, Jesus says this, sanctify them in the truth. Jesus talking to the Father, your word is truth. How are we changed to be like Christ? How do we grow in Christ? How are we sanctified in Christ? It's through his word. It's through his word. At any point in history, Regardless of society, culture, leaders, or world events, the church proclaims, preaches, and teaches the Word of God. As opinions, perspectives, values change with every generation, the church continues to stand firm in the face of the winds of change. Okay? So, uh, let's talk about this for a second. If we are called the pillar of truth... Okay, as you write that on the board, we're the pillar of truth. And if I talked about the fact, if we start to weaken, we don't really function very well as a pillar, okay, and scary things happen. In my head, I just have that picture from the book of Judges where they put Samson in his old age up against a column, and he has like 3,000 or 5,000 Philistines in there, and he just pushes them over, and the whole thing collapses. Like, that was a good moment for the people of God. But it's a bad moment when the church does the same thing, when its columns collapse either side. Now, So we're called to be a pillar of truth. But what happens if instead of being a pillar of truth, we get a little confused with our doctrine and we major on the minors and we become a pillar of opinions or a pillar of preferences or a pillar of persuasions? What happens if we go from being a pillar of truth to one of these types of pillars? What starts to happen to the church? And what happens to the way the world views the church? What do you think? Disunity. Disunity in the church, right? Because we're starting to major on the minors. And not everyone has the opinion. Have you ever noticed that? When someone has a strong opinion and it's outside of the core essentials of the truth, of the word, sometimes you run into disagreement. Okay, so yeah, disunity starts to happen. What else? You have no absolutes. Hmm. No absolutes. Very good. Because you're not grounded, okay? In God's word, you're grounded in a preference or a persuasion. What else? Confusion. Confusion, for sure. Not very attractive to the rest of the world. No. They see you swaying in the wind, by the way. Okay? And they, and they run into your persuasions, and they bump up against your opinions. And they're not bumping up against Jesus 
or the foundational truths of the gospel, they're bumping into something else. I'm sure I've used this illustration before, but my grandfather, a thousand years ago, however long ago it was, when he had two young children, he went up to the doors of the Baptist church, which is located like eight blocks from his house. I can see it in my mind. I passed it over and over again. He went up there and he had like a button shirt on, okay? A nice looking shirt like yours. And he was told at the door, sir, you need to have a jacket on. And my grandfather, who was a mechanic, just holding things together for his family, trying to put you know, food on the table, was told, sir, until you have a jacket, you can't come in here. So come back when you have a jacket, okay? So they had an opinion of what the dress code should be in a church. So my grandfather didn't have the opportunity to even meet Jesus. He met an opinion. He met a preference. He met a persuasion. And you know what? None of those things were very attractive. He never darkened the door of a church again, ever, okay? So that has a huge impact. The thing that people should meet when they come, the person they should meet when they come to the church is Jesus and his truths and the gospel, not opinions, persuasions, and preferences. So we always have to weigh what we're holding sacredly as are these the same things that are taught clearly in God's word? If not, perhaps we're becoming a pillar of opinions instead of the pillar of truth. That's super important. So as the pillar of truth, we're, we always have to have some sort of a relationship with culture. Culture is always changing. So sometimes when culture changes, we need to adapt. Did any of you bring a horse and buggy to get here tonight? Well, why? You adapted, right? Okay. When you need to find information about the church, are you sitting there by your mailbox? No. You, you check your email, you check the website, you check your app because we've adapted. All right. So there are times when you adapt with culture. Adapting with culture is not a bad thing. None of you are wearing togas or whatever they wore 2,000 years ago. Like, we are adapting in certain ways. We just are. But there's other times when we challenge culture and there's other times when we confront culture. There's times when we kind of have to negotiate a balance. Okay, we don't totally agree with you in this, but like it's not really our place to change it. There's some interesting things happening in our world right now. Okay, like if you lived in, Col if we, this church, lifted and landed in Colorado. Sorry. Hey guys, you're good. And landed in Colorado, that's a, that's a different world to live in because now you go out to a cafe and the guy beside you is smoking something that nobody's smoking here and you're not really in a position to say you can't do that. Why? Because legally they can totally do it. So now it doesn't mean you need to do it. It doesn't mean you need to do it, but you're in a weird position. Like you can't just say you're wrong because actually they, they can do it. Like today, if somebody's smoking a cigarette, you could have the same response. There's a lot. Somebody could be drinking too much caffeine. That's also altering somebody a little bit. You could have the same response. Somebody's eating too many brownies. You could have the same response, right? So no matter what it is, there's a point where you're doing too much, and the Bible says you need to calm it down. There's some moderation. So there's areas of challenge. If someone else is saying, we're just going to have sex outside of marriage all we want, we're never going to say it's okay. Okay, legally it is, but like, no, nah, there's never a situation where that's okay. Yeah, there's probably a situation where it's okay to have a brownie or two. But we can't necessarily say that about having sex outside of marriage a couple times. Like, it just doesn't work that way. So there are times when we challenge and times when we confront. Okay? Any other thoughts on that? It's not easy. And these two kind of blend sometimes. It's, it's not easy. But we're always asking that question with culture. To be the pillar of truth, 
When do we adapt? When do we challenge? When do we confront? Any thoughts on that? Until someone is a believer, a confrontation about sex outside of marriage might not be, I mean, they're... A conversation in the church and a conversation with culture outside of the church are two very different things. So this is conversations outside of the church. So if someone says, oh, well, you're a single person and you're hanging out at the bar and someone comes up to you and says, would you like to go home? And you know what they mean. No, you have to confront that. Like it's a conversation outside the church, but you have a set boundaries that you say no. Okay, so there's, but someone might say, would you like to have a cigarette? And you might be able to have one. It's not like, I mean, it's hard to say you're totally in sin if you have a cigarette, but having sex is definitely in sin. So like, I mean, so there's just, it's just interesting, okay? So it's just not easy. So we're always thinking this way. We're always trying to figure out how to do this. Um, we could probably spend a whole session just talking through that and giving you tons of examples. Because it'd be fun if I had time just to throw different examples and just have us all wrestle with it. Because there's lots of them. Um, let's go to diversity. Okay. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 is kind of like a, a picture in heaven. Uh, so this is a, in a future day. And this is actually describing what we will probably be doing. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Okay, so in heaven, there will be people from every kind of ethnic group, every people group, every different language here on earth that was spoken will be represented there in heaven too. We are crazy diverse. Like. I don't think there's any organization on planet Earth that can say that. Like, we will be able to say that because God is choosing to do that. We will be crazy diverse. Now, the topic after diverse is the topic of, of unity. So let's just, and depending on which verses you read first, will cause you to focus, you could overly focus on diversity or you could overly focus on unity. And depending on how you land, it does have some implications into how, into how you view the world, Christianity, and your life. So let's make sure we're in balance. So the Bible is very clear. Our foundation, if we've placed our faith in him, is Christ. He is our identity. We are grounded and founded in him. So that's common. We talked about that last week. The Spirit has given us unity in that we're grounded and founded in Christ. One Lord, one baptism, one salvation, one God and Father of all. Like we're told that. (coughs) But at the exact same time, we're all a little bit different. How so? How about, take me. I am male. I am in the United States. I am Caucasian. I'm a middle-class dude. And (laughs) since we're using scripture, I'm a Gentile. I am. I'm one of those. So, like, all these things are true of me. If I'm hanging out in Mexico with some Mexican students, when we, we did that for a period of time, my wife and I, we're sitting there looking at some people that aren't the same as me. Talking to a guy, he's from Mexico, so his life experience is very different than mine. Okay, he is, um, what does C stand for? I can't even remember. He's not Caucasian. He's Latino. Uh, he is, now I went to his home, so by US standards, it's more of a lower class type of environment, and he is also a Gentile. So, so Reuben, okay, my buddy Reuben, is different than me in multiple ways. So there's diversity there. We are different. When we both became Christians, 
He's still Latino, I'm still Caucasian. He was still born in Mexico and has a Mexican point of view of the world, and I'm still born in the U.S. and have an American point of view of the world. Like, that is still true. Okay, so both are true. Unified, together, and still diverse. Keep that in your head as we read these passages. Page 17 at the top. Galatians 3.28. Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ. Now, if you spend some time reading literature that's trying to convince you that androgyny is okay, or trying to convince you of well, lots of different things that society is starting to, to change on right now, they will usually go to this verse, and they'll say, if you really understand the gospel, then there's no longer a distinction between male and female. If you really understand the gospel, there's no distinction between these other areas as well. But here's the problem. If this is the only verse you look at, then you're ignoring other verses like the verses that discuss how the wife is supposed to act and function with her husband, how the husband is supposed to act and love his wife. You just, you skip those, because clearly there, there's teaching that there's distinction between the two. There are multiple places in scripture where it talks about the person who is the slave or the employee and the person who is the master or the employer. And God calls one to act a certain way and calls the other to act a certain way. He doesn't look at them and say, like the whole book of Philemon is written about this. He doesn't look at them and say, well, you're no longer the employer and you're no longer the employee. When you became a Christian, it's not like your, your male parts and your female parts just fell off. I mean, turned into these androgynous beings. Like, you're, you're still who you were before you received Christ. So his point here is because in Galatia, there's some wrestling between Jews and Gentiles where they're wanting to be distinguished from one another. And he's saying you can't do that. Like, you are one in Christ. You now make up one body. You are now a singular, singular house made up of many different bricks. You are diverse, but your unity is more important than your diversity. Because if the, di the diversity is creating disunity, then they're emphasizing the top part too much. If we're emphasizing the unity so much that we no longer recognize diversity, then we're pointing out the unity piece too much. We have to hold that in balance where both are true. If you're a lady, it's awesome that you're a lady. Okay? Whatever your ethnic background is, it is awesome that you are that. You're just as God wanted you to be. Okay? But at the same token, regardless of your gender, regardless of your background, regardless of your economic status, you and I in Christ are one. So you have to hold both of those things true. Whenever you hear one disappear and the other one's highlighted, there's usually an agenda. When this one disappears and this one's highlighted, there's a different agenda. Just recognize that, okay? I just want you to be aware. Uh, the same situation happens when it comes to conversations about how we interact with the world. You'll hear some people say, the Bible says we're supposed to be separate from the world. The world's supposed to be way over there and we're supposed to be separate from the world. But they've forgotten some verses. There is a verse that says that. But there's other verses that say you are light and you are salt. You are an ambassador. You're the aroma of Christ to a dying world. Now, salt doesn't, so salt goes on meat, right? So if you need to put salt on your meat, you don't toss the salt over your shoulder. You put it onto the meat, like it's there with the meat, or it has no function or purpose. So we being salt means that we're kind of in the grind, like we're in it, and we're having influence over it, okay? It doesn't mean we become it, which is the whole separation piece, but we're a part of it, and we're in it. So there's a balance there. 
Okay, so we have to make sure in lots of situations that we're reading both sides of that. Because, like this verse right here, Galatians 3.28 is used oftentimes to say that there is no difference in any way, shape, and form between a male and female. Like, that's the verse that's used. But God made male and female for a reason, and we want to honor the way he created us. So we don't want androgyny to take over and say that the Bible supports androgyny. Okay? Does that make sense? The next verse says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12:11 says this, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing spiritual gifts to each one individually, just as he wills. So, here we kind of mark some distinctions between Pastor Mike and Reuben. Reuben. I, he rolls his R, but I can't roll my R, so I, I'm not going to pretend to. Yes. Um, so in addition to these things, there's also a set of spiritual gifts that I've been given, and a different set of spiritual gifts that he's been given. And that isn't this, I mean, it's something that maybe you're born with or the Spirit gives you at the point when you become a believer, but there's something special and unique about how God's designed you in your gift mix that he wants you to use for the betterment of the church. So that's another thing that makes us distinct, okay? And that's a good thing. Okay, if we had more time, we would go to Ephesians 4, where it talks about, in 1 Corinthians 12, a little bit farther, where it says, these things were given for the common good. Like, your diversity is for the sake of our unity. And without diversity, the unity will suffer. Isn't that interesting? It's like they actually benefit one another. They're not in contrast to one another. Both are God's design, and both, therefore, are beautiful. The church is the most diverse movement slash organization on the planet. There are or will be members from every ethnic group, from every economic group, from every political group. Inevitably, as we meet brothers and sisters from different parts of the world, we'll have different points of view of, on the world, politics, and on some perspectives of ethics. Okay, so one thing we have to make sure we don't do when we first meet, especially believers from other parts of the world, is begin to judge them based upon their culture, or begin to judge them because they have a different point of view on some ethics. So, say you go into more of a third world country situation, and maybe it's been in their culture, like for centuries, like as long as that culture's been historically kept track of, women there get married at age 13 or 14. There are many cultures around the world where that's just standard and normal. I have a 13-year-old daughter. Like, the, the idea of that, like, freaks me out. Like, I want to jump in there and say, no! Like, there's something wrong with that, because I, I just have a daughter that age. It just seems... But from their point of view, it's the way it's always been. And I can't point to Scripture and say there's a particular age where you get married. I just know for me, I'm very uncomfortable with it. I don't like it. And my tendency would be to judge it. Now, that same person looks at me and my culture, and they say, how many square feet are in your house? How many people live in your house? But what we do here is if we have any extra square feet, we offer it to people who are hurting. We may know them, we may not know them. They're family or friends, but no one's on the streets here. If you have extra space in your house, you fill it with people. Like, literally. And that's true. I've been in third world countries where there are so many people in every single house. So from their point of view, looking at us, they have a point of view on our ethical behavior. There are people on the street and you have an empty bed in your house. What is wrong with you? How can you possibly live with yourself? Like, so from their point of view, they're looking at us so confused. And we're looking at them so confused. But from our background, 
we just kind of see it one way. And then from their background, which is a totally different experience, they see it another way. But we both have this. We both can be unified in Christ. So this is where we start the relationship. We can have conversations about our distinctions, but those things should not cause us to not be able to be unified. Does that make sense? That's not an easy one. Because I ran into that some. The Southern Baptists, <laughs> and this is, um, this is not a glowing part of their history. I, I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, so I got to hear a lot about some of these things. But for a long time, like 1800s, early 1900s, the way they would do missions, part of it was they would take the gospel to people, but also when they showed up, if there wasn't like a white brick building with a slanted roof and a little like cross on top, then it hadn't been Christianized yet because Christians have little white, little white chapels. They just do. Like, it doesn't matter where you're from, you're supposed to have a little white chapel. So what they were doing is they were giving them the gospel, plus they were trying to force culture on them. Do you catch that? Like, to really be a Christian, you don't just need Jesus, you need a little white brick chapel. Isn't that silly? Like, it feels so silly now. But at the time, like, that's just, for some reason, they just thought that's what you had to do. So people would make sure they could raise money and make sure there was enough there for people to build the little white chapels. And people grew up like living in huts and they didn't have windows, like just, it's a completely different world that they were living in. But for some reason to be a Christian, you had to walk into a little white chapel and look a little more American, okay? That's funny. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, even in the way we portray Jesus, we portray him usually as, as a white dude. Um, and I remember in the YMCA's where I go to, there's always, I think they have the same picture in every YMCA. Perfectly straight hair, Caucasian. I mean, he's Middle Eastern. Like, he's probably not Caucasian. But um, it's just interesting. Like, we just, we view Christianity through our eyes. And we think Jesus looks like the guy in the mirror. We do. So what does Jesus look like? Eh, probably like that. We just do. And he probably didn't. Okay, so good point. Very interesting. So unity. John 17 is a chapter where Jesus is praying for his disciples, and then he prays for those who in the future will believe. He's actually praying for us in this chapter. Pretty powerful, pretty awesome. So in this prayer, realize that this is Jesus himself talking to God the Father with you in mind. He says to the Father, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Now, each phrase in this verse, if we spent time on it, should blow you away. He just said that the glory that was given to him, that is from the Father to the Son, in some form or fashion, he's given that to us. Why? That they may be one, just as, or in the same way that you, Father, and I are one. So we've talked about the Trinity several times. Like they were unified and together and had perfect community for all of eternity. So what is our unity supposed to look like? He says that our unity is supposed to replicate or look like theirs. Like that's what Jesus, he's not praying for anything less than that. He's praying for that level of unity between you and I. They, like they know every thought that they're going to have. Like it's just amazing that what Jesus is praying for here. So. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as, or in the same way that you and I, that we are one. I in them, and you in me, 
that they may be perfected in unity. So that, catch this, there's a purpose to this, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as, or in the same way that you have loved me. So when they see us unified together, somehow they're supposed to look at that and conclude there is a God and he must love them dearly. Okay? So the result of us being unified is the world sees it. Remember how diverse we are. Like when, when you see a group of diverse people, different political backgrounds, how often does that happen? How many organizations are built around people having different political points of view that are still unified? Not many, not many, but the church is. Different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. If you go to a country club, it's primarily a certain group of people. If you go to a community center, it might be another group of people. So depending on where you go, they tend to collect certain economic groups together. Here we have all of it. So it's so unique and so strange from the world's point of view that when they see unity actually happen in the midst of all the diversity, there is no explanation besides there must be a God. And the love that he has for them must be the thing that they're sharing amongst one another because there is no other explanation. Okay? How are we doing with that? All right. Do you feel like we're doing well with that? Do you feel like it's a growth area? Are you wanting us to rate the church? Is that what you're saying? Are you sure? That little thing that says one to ten. You, you can use a scale of one to ten. What do you think? You're here partly because of the unity? Because I've been places that weren't like that. Mm, okay. So you've been in places much worse. Okay. <laughs> You're all laughing. No, okay. That's too much. <laughs> you, did not, you did not put words in my mouth. Good. Okay. I was going to say, um, not being a member of the Holy Trinity, I don't think I can ever measure up to the thing that's going on with yeah. our if the standard's the Trinity, we're probably not going to fully hit that mark, but we can join Jesus in praying for it. Um, and I think there have been times when we have experienced some really good unity here. Um, when there's some change that takes place or we move in a direction, it just it shuffles people and it's, it's hard for moments. I mean, I, I don't know if you've noticed that. Okay. There, ha there have been some moments here where we've moved some chairs or... I, I told you about I told you about the weeks where we brought the muffins, right? How hard that was. Like, so someone found out that I'm the muffin guy. Like, I I'm the one who approves whether it's big donuts or muffins. Like, someone comes to me and I say, yeah, that sounds fun. Let's try muffins. So then I have a line of people in front of me that Sunday, and the line of people they say things like this, Pastor Mike, there are children crying downstairs because there's muffins. They're crying because of the muffins. I'm so sorry. Pastor Mike, I partly come here because of the big donuts. So I want you to know that I would prefer to have big donuts. Yes, sir. Pastor Mike, these muffins are dry. I am so sorry you're not enjoying your free food. You know what I mean? Like, so, 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 so those are real things, okay? So I would say that's, so we're probably not quite at Trinity level of unity. Okay, so I would say we're not quite hitting that yet. I think we're doing better. But yeah, we still have some, some work to do. Yeah, you didn't know that was happening? That happens. 
okay? You should know that, okay? So when you hear that, instead of them coming to Pastor Mike, you can say, you know what, maybe they'll have donuts next week. Like, if you can cut anyone off of the, at the pass for me, Pastor Mike would appreciate that. Okay, bottom of page 17. It says, you have made them, that is this diverse group of people, to be A, a singular kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth a day yet to come. I, I, yeah, so I've had plenty of time to think of terrible things I could have said to every single one of those people, and as long as I'm on camera, I'm not going to tell you what those thoughts were, but maybe after class. Yeah, I had a lot of thoughts that ran through my mind, but the thing that I couldn't stop running through my mind is we're talking about free food. We're talking about free food. Okay. (laughs) You're right. Um, Okay, you got me distracted. Page 18 at the top. Uh, another verse about unity. You also, as living stones, so those are individual things, are built, being built up as a, a singular spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So each of you, each of us are stones in a singular body, in a singular house for the Lord. So together we build and are made into a spiritual house. 1 Corinthians 12, same concept. Instead of a house, he's talking about a body. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free men, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So back in the day they were spending a lot of time trying to figure out someone who's Jewish and has all these promises, and they're part of the old covenant, and they're, they've memorized the law, like, how do they fit in with those who are new Christians that aren't Jewish, like Gentile believers. Do they get to enjoy the same benefits, or is there still distinction between the two? And what Paul's trying to do in multiple different places is is saying, you're now one house. You're all living stones. You're all together in Christ. Yes, there is a distinction, okay? Could have been Gentile, could have been Jewish, but that's a distinction, but it doesn't override the most important thing about you, and that's your unity in Christ, now and forever. And when I say forever, I'm talking about Revelation 19, 7 through 9, where it describes this picture of a wedding feast. And at that wedding feast, there is a bride. You will be there because you and I are a part of a singular bride, not brides with an S. It's a singular bride. The church is prepared, washed, and adorned for the bridegroom, who is Jesus himself at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We together unified will be the bride of Jesus Christ. Okay? And it describes it as a big feast, like it's a party. Like, we will actually be there. That is us. I don't know what it looks like. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's going to be beyond what John could even describe. So John got to see it, but for him it was hard to even put it to words. Okay? But you and I will be there, and we will experience unity, but you also individually will love the Savior to whom you're being betrothed. So both things are happening, okay? Individuality and unity. You're part of one bride, one house, one body, but yet you still individually love Jesus with all your heart. The Jews and the Gentiles and the Jews had the the scriptures. Mm -hmm. The Gentiles did not. Not, Yes. And now when Paul was writing this, Mm -hmm. he's telling them you're all the same. That was foreign to them, right? Yes. 
Yes. When the bride is all pulled together, do you think we will all see theology the same way? Yes, at the core. The question was when the Jews and and the Gentiles are pulled together, being the bride of Christ, will we all see theology the same way? And I would say at that point, yes, because we're all staring at the same Savior in the same way. And the core truths, the core fundamentals of the gospel, even though they were considered, they were called a, a mystery in the Old Testament, like, like Paul talks about that, like I'm here to proclaim to you the mystery, that is who Jesus was slowly being taught who he was for the Old Testament, but who's been made known clearly today, it talks about Abraham looking forward to these days, Moses looking ahead to a, a country that is not his own. So all of them were le- looking forward, leaning forward, expectant of this day. So they were looking forward to it. They just didn't have clarity in terms of what they were looking for. But I would even say now, being in the presence of the Lord, they get it right now because they are now with the Lord. Okay. So <clears throat> yeah, the, answer, the long answer to your question is yes, I think we'll have the same theological point of view. Jesus being the centerpiece of the gospel, the most beautiful thing in all the world. So another component of the church is the purity of the church. The purity of the church. Okay? The purity of the church is no little thing. Let's look at this little paragraph together. The church is made up of believers only. Does that mean every single person here on Sunday morning is a part of the universal, eternal church? Not necessarily unless everyone here has placed their faith in Christ, which we don't know. We hope, we pray, and if they're not, we pray that they become a part of it. That's why we preach the gospel on Sunday mornings so often, and we always give you the opportunity to go to the prayer room to have spiritual discussions. The Lord alone knows each and every person who has truly believed and is included in the church. There are people every Sunday morning who come because it's habit. There are people who come because they think it's the moral, upright, good thing to do. Some people come because they think being an American is being a Christian, and Christians should go to church, so they just show up at church. Uh, some people come because they just like the music. Some people, or <laughs> some people come because of the big donuts. Okay. They don't come they muffins. Yeah, attendance doesn't go up when we have muffins. Let's so. We have not had muffins since that conversation, by the way, Mike. It, I'm just like I can't deal with this. So we've had big donuts ever since. Um, we keep talking about donuts. All right, back to the paragraph. Uh, So even the big things in the church are based around those who believe. The Lord's Supper is for those who have believed. If you're not a believer, you're really not even supposed to take the Lord's Suppers. It's something for you to witness, to consider Christ, not something to participate in because you haven't participated in Christ. Baptism is something that is in response to placing your faith in Christ. So place your faith in Christ comes first before you experience baptism. Now, if someone consistently consistently lives a life that denies their profession of faith, then church discipline is something that we then consider. So someone can say, I've placed my faith in Christ, but if their life says, no, I haven't, what do we do with that person? Do we tell that person, do we give them assurance of salvation in that moment? So catch the question again. If someone says to you, I've placed my faith in Christ, but nothing in their life has changed, and they live their life however they want to live it, how do you, how do you move forward in that conversation? Start by talking about what it means to put your faith in Christ. Okay. So you say, it, you say you've done this. Can you explain to me what you've done? Can you... So I, I start with, have you truly? 
have you really, if, if I don't see any evidence, then I'm obviously suspecting they may not have. And do they really understand what that means? Okay. To put your faith in Christ. So I would start with that. Good. Anyone else? When that reference 6-1 says do gentleness, don't jump and say, ah, you must be a sinner and you're going to hell. That's not the way to approach that conversation. Good, good. So Paul tells us that we're saved by faith, not by works. And if we only read that verse, we would maybe say, well, okay, live, you know, claim to be going to heaven and live like hell. Go for it. But that's not the only verse that talks about that. James also discusses it. So Paul says we're saved by faith, not by works. But James also reminds us that faith always leads to works. Now, both of these are true. In fact, I would say Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2.10, right after saying we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, he says, in order to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. So you're not saved by them, but if you are saved, you're going to do them. Like, it's just part of who you are. It's part of your nature now where you, God's designed you to do those good works. He's changed your heart so you kind of want to do those good works. So you're going to live a life where you're trying to move forward and doing good works. So if you claim you have faith, but it appears to be dead, then you probably have never actually believed. And James would agree with that. He would say a living faith always leads to works. It just leads to works. Okay? In fact, he'll say to the point where we'll go to the other extreme. He'll say, if there's no works, don't assume that there's faith. In fact, assume that there's no faith. Okay? No works probably means no faith. Here, works don't, works don't save us. Faith does, but it also leads to work. So really, they're singing the same song, just in two different tunes. Okay? So, I, I spent some time on that because we have to have that in the back of our heads as we talk about church discipline. Only the Lord knows who's saved. And you and I are not in a position to judge someone's salvation, but God has given us scripture and examples and instructions on how to handle people who say they're believers and even become members of the church, but their lives tell a different story. Like, we don't just say, well, if you say you're saved, even though you do whatever you want, and you live however you want, and you hurt whoever you want, and you do whatever you want, we'll go ahead and assume you're saved. Go ahead and become a member of our church. Like, we don't do that. We can't do that. The church, which is God's church, has been called to be pure. So let's look at that. Um, <clears throat> Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1. Can somebody turn there? And when you get there, can you read Galatians 6.1 for me? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Good. So we would say church discipline kind of happens at different levels. So there's like level one church discipline. Now I'm not, there's no verse that says level one, but like in Matthew 18, when we go there, you're going to see like there's a progression. You start with this. If that doesn't work, you go to this. And if that doesn't work, you go to this. And then there's a last thing that you go to that we see in 1 Corinthians. We're going to work through some of those. But here in Galatians 6.1, we see an example of kind of level one church discipline. If you see your brother in sin, go punch him with a Bible and tell him to stop. Is that what it said? Okay, so what kind of heart are you supposed to have when you 
have that conversation. Meekness, gentleness, like kindness, humility. Like that person you're talking to, you are no better than they are. In Christ, you're unified and you desperately love them and want them to come back to Christ. If they've fallen away or they're sinning and struggling, you want them to fall more in love with Jesus. So you want to display the love of Jesus that they might run to him and grab him, right? Okay, so in level one, it's usually kind of a one-on-one situation. Let's go ahead and turn to Matthew. Matthew 18. Thank you. Can you, I'm going to have you read, actually, you know what, I'll go ahead and read it just because I'm not totally sure where to stop. And I don't want to yell stop when you're in the middle of reading. Um, So Matthew 18. I'm failing Bible drills. Okay. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Okay, so that's level one. So let's just do this. This is mano y mano. This is one-on-one. And the word there is, it's in private. From Galatians we read, it's supposed to be done in gentleness or meekness, okay, with humility, with love in your heart for that person. With love in your heart for that person. Verse 16 says this, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, they're supposed to be kind of like witnesses. So it's not just pick two random people and convince them that you're right and take them to then go after this person. Like if it's something that's kind of happening that people can see, okay, like whatever this trespass or sin is, this drifting away from the Lord, whatever it looks like, other people here are able to witness it and see it. And then you have to actually determine, like, there's some facts here. Like, this is starting to feel a little bit like a courtroom, isn't it? Like, you actually have to know what's going on and be able to come up to them and explain. You know, you don't think you're doing this, but let's give you a couple examples. Bob saw this. Jim saw this. I saw this. And because we love you, all three of us felt like we should talk to you about this. Okay, you didn't believe me when I told you. Here's a couple more examples that we want you to hear so that you know that this is what's happening. Okay? So we go from one-on-one to like a small group or two to three on one. Now, I don't think the attitude needs to change. Okay, it's not like now gentleness falls away. But the person now that you're talking to is starting to push back, potentially. Okay? And If they push back, well, we continue. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to, now it's a them, not just me, it's a them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. What he's saying there by Gentile or tax collector, since this is in the book of Matthew, which is written to Jewish believers or those Jews who would believe, is the idea of saying, let him be considered outside of the people of God. Let him be considered outside of the people of God. So at this point, it goes to the church. And if there still is not a willingness, it's then there's a question of maybe you're not one of us. Maybe you're not one of us. Maybe you still have, instead of saying you've believed the gospel and you've just fallen off a little bit, we have to acknowledge Maybe you never actually believe the gospel. Your biggest need isn't to 
be a member of a church, your biggest need is to know Christ. Okay? So the end result of this, no matter what step you're on, is always to win them to Christ. Whether it's a believer who's wandering who needs to embrace Christ again, or it's an unbeliever who maybe look like a believer, you want them to embrace Christ for the first time. The goal is always to redeem them, to bring them back to Christ. Okay? That's always the goal here. So, uh, level... What's the next verse here? Okay, so here's another... Here's a, here's a caveat in 1 Timothy. But before we go to the caveat, I just want you to notice one more thing here. Verses 19 and 20 are two verses that we use all the time when we talk about prayer. You probably will remember these. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Like, often that's used before a prayer meeting just to acknowledge that God is here. What's the context of that? Church discipline. Just realize that. Like, when we have to have a hard conversation about a brother or sister that we care about, and we have to go and talk to them, that's a moment where we just need to know God is with us. Those are hard conversations. Those are not easy. All right? Now, the question we have to ask ourselves, if, if this is what Jesus wants us to do, how are we doing with this? Okay? Most churches, most churches, I'm not saying this church or church that I've come from, but most churches just don't even do anything, right? A lot of them just don't do anything because this is so hard. This is so hard. Okay, so the last church I was involved with before I came here was a church where we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to do this well. Like that book came, like the guy from that church wrote that because we worked on it so much together as elders and as pastors. And it is not easy. Um, one of the, the cases I got to work on uh, was one where a lady had basically left her husband and had said out loud, I just don't have feelings for him anymore. But she had a lot of feelings for the new guy that she was spending way too much time with and sleeping with, okay? Claiming to be a believer. So her friend talks to her. Her husband talks to her. She's like, I don't want to talk about this. I'm going to continue doing what I want to do. Multiple people went and talked to her. No thank you. I'm happy making the decisions I'm making. Now, the Bible says if you know Jesus, the Spirit will convict you, and you'll be drawn back to the truth, and eventually you repent if you're a believer. That didn't work. So then it's brought to the elders and the pastors. Hey, here's a lady. She's a member of your church, but she's living a completely immoral life in every way. Like, just she's dropped her husband. She's doing whatever she wants with this other guy who's not married and she's planning on leaving him. Hard situation. So we then extend, you know, to get a meeting with her. So me and one of our female counselors meets with her and she has no interest. In fact, and then she told us, this is the last time I'm hanging out with you folks at all. You can leave me alone. You can get out of my business. Okay? Which, let's be honest. How would you like people getting into your business? So one of the reasons why we don't like church discipline is, isn't just because it's hard to do. If you open yourself up to church discipline, that means it could also happen to you. That means people are watching you. 
not in a weird way, but like they're looking out for you and they want to make sure that you are walking with Christ. So to open up the church to discipline is to open up you to discipline. So her response to that was, no, thank you. Leave me alone. At that point, I, we sent her a letter, okay, just saying something like, um, we're so sad that that's the decision you've made. We don't think this is the best for you. We don't think this is what the Lord has for you. We want you back. We want you to come back to Christ. And we want you to come back to fellowship within our church. Please consider meeting with us again. Received a letter that was very similar to the conversation we had, just with a bunch of new extra words in it that I wouldn't be able to read out loud to you. Um, three months later, we send her another letter because the Holy Spirit works over time. So it's not like a letter on Monday, a letter on Tuesday, a letter on Wednesday, on Thursday. Maybe you're not a believer. Like it, you give him time. So you send another letter, very similar, saying this is our last letter. This is our last attempt to draw you close to Christ and to the church. We'd love to meet with you. Didn't hear anything. Final letter saying, we're going to be removing your membership from the church. We want you to come to know Christ. We think you need to hear the gospel. We want you to know him, love him, and we'd love to have, have you come back to church at any time. So that's kind of how we ended it. So there was no like aggression. It was just, we think you need to hear about Jesus. There's a chance you're not a Christian. So your next step isn't continuing to be a part of membership of a church. Your next step is to understand the gospel and receive Christ. See the difference there? To be a member of a church, usually you're supposed to be a believer first. Not usually, you're supposed to be a believer first. You have to be a member of the capital C church before you're a member of the lowercase c church. And when someone demonstrates that they're probably not a believer, then membership isn't appropriate. Membership isn't appropriate. So this is, this is usually what you go through. Now there are some caveats and some exceptions. 1 Timothy 5.19 says this, Do not receive an accusation against an elder slash pastor except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Why would Paul do this? Why would he make this exception? Any thoughts? People in authority, a lot of times are, if, if they make someone angry, they will take it out on them. And hmm. they will say things about that person that aren't true. So you have to have more than one person say it. That's good. So people who are in authority, where lots of people see them and know them, sometimes if they do something they don't like, it can almost be like a way of personally attacking, not so much actually trying to love them back to Jesus. And that's what we find that can happen a lot. Uh, we haven't seen this a lot, though it has, there have been a couple little weird things, uh, but we need to have a couple witnesses, okay, for that. And if the pastor has done something, usually there will be a couple people who have seen it, because pastors live in a very public setting, and then we want to hear that. Like our goal, we want to protect our pastors, but we also want to see our pastors walk with Jesus. So you honor everything the Bible says about this. Like you want two or three witnesses, but if there are two or three witnesses, we have to have a discussion with the pastor. Okay, so both of those things are true. Here's an example in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, where there's this dude in the church and he is doing something either with his, it says his father's wife. So it's either his mom or a stepmom. And He's doing things that Paul says even Gentiles know not to do. Paul says this, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's pretty hardcore. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of Jesus. So in this super sinful situation, Paul's hope still there is restoration and redemption from the sin. Like this is bad stuff. But Paul's still saying my hope for him 
this person is, even though we're removing his membership from the church, like, and he goes on to say, this, this is so sinful that you probably shouldn't even be associating with him. Like he's openly doing this, saying, I'm a part of this church and I'm doing this inappropriate thing. You need to distance yourself from that. There's a difference between someone who's kind of just doing a little sin that nobody knows about versus someone who's like open and excited about their sin. At that point, you're not saying, well, let's associate ourselves with that person according to 1 Corinthians 5, okay? There's a little bit of a distancing that takes place. You want them to receive Christ, come to repentance, change their life, and invite them back into the church. Um, but Paul's goal, even in this really hard situation, is ultimately redemption and repentance. That's really important to see. Okay, let's go ahead and let's go to that last sentence there under discipline. Discipline is taking place. I want you to know this. Discipline is taking place all the time in an unofficial way throughout the church as believers help one another grow in holiness through grace and truth over time in intentional relationships. So this whole concept that we saw in Galatians 6 and we see in the first step there in Matthew 18, like that should be happening all the time. So I'm good friends with Matt and Stacy Walker. So if I'm out hanging out with them and they see me just be a little harsh with my wife, like I believe Matt knows he could look at me the next time he sees me and say, hey dude, what, why'd you go off on her like that? Why'd you use that tone? Like, do you feel open to saying that to me? Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and Matt knows that I'm open talking to him about stuff too because we go both directions on that. Like we need each other. That's actually level one discipline, okay? So all the time you and I are living in an environment of level one discipline. And it's good and it's healthy because we're living in relationships where there's accountability, Lord willing, some authenticity. You're living in a world where people are like seeing you and encouraging you and helping you. There's just a reality that sometimes you're sitting there in a group of people and you've got a big chunk of something in your teeth and you just don't know about it. It happens. Dude, you've got a big green thing chunked right in there between your teeth. Maybe a little and get that thing out. So we just don't even know it. The same thing happens when it comes to sin. Like sometimes we've got something that everyone else can see, but we just can't see. And what a loving act for that person to slow us down in private with gentleness, loving us well and saying, maybe you don't see this, but when you do that, it really looks arrogant. When you do that, it looks rough and unloving. When you do that, you're hurting the people's feelings who are trying to love you well. Like, we need to hear that so badly. One kind word like that will grow you more than a thousand encouragements just telling you how great you are. Like, that constructive, loving admon admonition, encouragement, little poke of push is amazing. And when you find people like that in your life, you hold on to them with all your strength because they're the people that God's going to use to grow you and change you more than anyone else in your life. It might be hard for you, you might not always like what they have to say, but you just found a precious person. So when you see this push that the church is making, where you hear us say over and over again, make spiritual friends, make spiritual friends, there's lots of benefits to that. One, this whole concept of unity doesn't happen unless you have people who are spiritual and love Jesus who are close to you. This, this idea of the world looking at people who love one another and then saying there must be a God. If we don't have close spiritual friends, that doesn't happen in our city. The city doesn't see that. If we don't have close personal friends who know us pretty well, our purity will not be what it could be. Our spiritual growth will not be what it could be. Okay, so this whole concept of getting us closer together helps us in so many ways. 
okay? So I encourage you, I love you coming to core class, but I also want you somewhere where people actually know what's going on in your life. I want you somewhere where somebody could actually push you on something. We also have sin. You'd be amazed how easily everyone else can see your sin, even when you are just so used to it and you're accustomed to it and you can't see it, okay? It's just, it's the way it is. Everyone here knows the color of your shirt. You maybe don't remember the color of shirt you put on. Everyone here sees it, okay? It's just kind of how sin is. Like, we can see it in one another, but sometimes we don't see it in ourselves. So we need one another's help. We need to live happily in this level one area at all times. Any quick thoughts on that? Do you believe me? That is good? Culturally, our response to that is, stay out of my business. It's not your business. Culturally, like just American, West Virginian, like that's just, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not for you to discuss with me. That's my thing, not your thing. Back off. I didn't ask for your opinion. I mean, those are our tendencies. That's got to change. I don't care how we grew up or what our parents taught us or the culture that we were raised in. We need to slowly transition as believers into what Jesus told us our culture should be. We need to look more like Jesus, less like the culture we grew up in. Everyone has cultural baggage. We have some too. And if people are trying to love you well and you're saying, get out of my business, we need some help from Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for each person here. Um, I pray that we just fall more in love with you. I pray that we would have people in our lives that would help us do that uh, by being authentic with them. I pray that we'd have people in our life that would push us and challenge us in ways that we maybe haven't been pushed and challenged before. Allow us to be open to that and let's invite that into our lives. Because without that, there's so many areas where we just will never grow. And Lord Jesus, we need growth to look like you, to be unified with one another, that the city might know who you are and the beauty of the gospel. So grow as changes, allow us to fall more in love with, and more in love with you. In Christ's name, amen.